Hello, welcome to the Sharp Angles Podcast. I am Dan Pizzuta, joined here as always by Rich Rebar and TA. And to, today we are joined by some other Sharp Football Analysis contributors, uh, Ryan McChrystal, Brandon Donahue, who, uh, if you guys have been paying attention to the website, have been doing uh, some mock drafts and some draft work for us with some rumors and, and notes and a whole bunch of just great things uh, leading up to the draft that I think has really helped all of us be more prepared for the draft. So we're going to talk to them a bunch today about a lot of stuff that's going into the draft. We are now, you know, less than a week away. So I'll just throw this out to the group. Guys, how's everybody doing today? Doing great. Looking forward to the draft. Doing great. This is the best time of year, a week to go. We're almost done. All the rumors are flying. It's a fun time. Is this the best time of the year? <laughs> is How it? do you mock draft guys feel <laughs> Most <about> stressful. <laughs> most stressful. <laughs> <laughs> When you guys Ryan is from Cleveland. Hour. Wait, Ryan is from Cleveland originally. Okay, so along with oh. me and Rich, he knows that the draft is our Super Bowl, typically. So he's just used to that as just being the best time of year. Exactly. There's a lot of draft Knicks who came out of Cleveland. So. <laughs> but how is it for you mock draft guys? Are you guys, when you get to this point, are you kind of just uh, in the 11th hour just kind of done with it? Or are you still excited at this part of the process? I'm still excited because it, it kind of like shit our focus kind of shifts. I think at like this last week to 10 days, because we're starting to get like slightly more concrete rumors, especially as some of the GMs like have uh, some press conferences and whatnot leading up to the draft. So it sort of shifts from like a little bit of player evaluation into like, now we're like really getting into the meat of it to try to figure out what's like really going to happen. So yeah, was- same, same for me. I, it's, you, you tend to lock it down basically the night, uh, the night before the draft. So this is a big week to, to kind of sift through what's real and what's not real out there. Yeah, so that was going to be part of my questions for you guys because you guys have been updating this you know, post that we've had on the website for you know the past you know month and a half at least uh, where you're just kind of going over rumors and news that are coming from either, you know, some of the reporters or, you know, GM press conferences uh, in general. So how are you guys going through that? Like, what are you taking away from what is heard? How are you figuring out what you think uh, is real and what is just like people throwing stuff out there to throw stuff out there? And then how are you putting that into what you're using for your mocks? Well, I'll go first as, as far as my just overall mock draft process um i mean obviously it's not an exact science uh, in fact huddle report who is the site that tracks our accuracy uh tweeted out the other day that in the 19 years that they have been tracking mock drafts the average the average mock only has six player to team matches and 25 players to place in round round one correctly and that's out of 1717 mock drafts so it's a rather large sample size um, so, but for me personally, my formula consists of uh, doing some sort of weighted average of big boards, scouting reports, mock drafts, team needs, fits, draft odds. And I'll say to your point, Dan, um, news and rumors. So in a perfect world, the consensus best player available matches with the team's biggest need and it makes, and it makes it an obvious choice, but that really, that's really the case. And that's evidence this year with all the uncertainty still surrounding the third pick. Um, so just to go, go over that as a specific example, and someone uh, actually asked that on our Twitter space the other night as to, you know, what do you do when scouts or even yourself think a player should go at number three, but reports are suggesting otherwise. Um, so obviously there's a clear divide this year as to who scouts think the Niners will take and who reporters, you know, most notably Schefter is hearing the Niners will take. Um, so in that case, Schefter coming out that strong at the time of the trade up, I give more credence to that than the normal rumors just kind of floating around the internet. So while the majority of scouts and even myself don't think the Niners should take Mac Jones, I'm still mocking him there as of today based on the information that's out there. Um, I kind of equate it to the year Baker Mayfield was drafted first. And uh, TA, you can probably uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the timing of this, but um, if I remember correctly, uh, you know, very few scouts thought he was going to go number one or should go number one. And Chef just started to suggest Baker was going to be the pick maybe a couple days before. And then uh, the morning of, I think Schefter even said 
something to the effect there's something to the effect of you know Baker Mayfield is strongly being considered at the number one pick today and still draft Twitter was scoffing at it that they didn't believe that was actually going to happen so at some point you know you just have to go with the information you're provided if you you know if you deem it trustworthy so you know it's a combination of all those things I mentioned earlier but that can vary with each player you know and, and report yeah, I mean, for me, I think about it pretty similar to Brendan, but I sort of have like there's three things that I think are important to focus on going into it. And then the first is you have to know who calls the shots in each organizations because it's, sometimes it's really easy to look at a head coach and a scheme that they run, but if they don't have the final say, that might not really matter that much. So it's really key to know who actually has the final say in each situation and what their tendencies are and what their experiences have been in the past. That'll help you narrow it down for each team. And then also, like Brendan kind of touched on this, but know who to trust. And a lot of times that's beat writers. Obviously, the beat writers know the teams much more in depth than any of us who look at the league as a whole could ever do. But it doesn't mean that every beat writer is plugged in. So it's really helpful to follow the beat writers really year round and just sort of get a feel for like who is really plugged into their organization, who do the fans of that team trust, because they can give some really good clues, especially in sort of inter interpreting news like when the gm does a press conference the beat writers who are really plugged in might have a better feel for how we should read what he's telling us and then the last thing is just you know just use logic you know if you were the gm what would you do now the teams act illogically every year so it's not gonna it doesn't give you the right answers but like an example i can give for this year this is unique but it's a good example of how you can use logic to help you i've been going through and i've been trying to look up which gms and coaches were at the pro days for the players who opted out in 2020. Because I just think if I were a GM, there's no way I'm investing a first round pick in someone that I haven't seen on the field or in person in a year and a half plus. So I think that that could be a way that you can just kind of like narrow it down for certain players as far as figuring out those teams. So just using all those things, you, can, you kind of narrow it down and then we're, more, we're wrong more than we're right, but you can at least have a pretty good process for it. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's super interesting because I know you guys have been doing these mock drafts. I think right now, both of you have done six uh, for this site each. Yes. And seven's <laughs> still to come. And yeah, so, so you'll each be doing uh, one the week of the draft. So we'll have uh, one each from you guys uh, next week. Um, so when you're doing that, let's just kind of go into some of the process of putting that. What is going to make you, you know, if you're doing one a week, there's not always super big news that's going to come out. So what's making you change things and what are things that, you know, are kind of making you keep players where they are? So where do you make that distinction? Well, for me, the week to week changes early on. Um, It comes a little bit from, we might hear news just about like one specific player or one specific team. And then it's just sort of like the dominoes fall. As far as the players that stay put, there's usually maybe five to six players that pretty early on, I feel like there's a really strong match. I'm just going to leave them there until we hear otherwise. But the rest of it, you know, four or five weeks out, like it's very fluid. So like one change could just set off like a whole chain reaction. Yeah, exactly. That's that's basically one player will dictate and, you know, a myriad of changes from a week to week basis, because it's just all such a domino effect. So that's really, it's not like you're getting news on 10 different players. And that's why you're, you're doing such, there's so many big changes on a week to week basis. It's, it's usually one or two players that you're hearing something on. And then that just has a cascading effect throughout the rest of the draft. I mean, quarterback has such a, I mean, it's such a big influence, right? I mean, we saw last year with Tua, no one, Miami did a good job of kind of locking that up in terms of, what they were going to do. I mean, there was rumors that it could be Herbert, it could be, you know, nobody, it could be offensive linemen. I think the morning of people were saying it was going to be Andrew Thomas. So, um, you know, the quarterback has such a cascading effect, like you said, because I mean, look at uh, number four. I mean, if Atlanta takes a quarterback that changes the whole draft, or they decide to trade down to a team that wants a quarterback that changes everything. So, um, you know, you could have guys that if they're not taken or traded, you know, at a certain spot in the top five or six, they could fall, you know, to the teens potentially uh, as a quarterback. So it's, uh, I think it's, that definitely is a big part of this, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's why I keep talking about the Broncos every chance, every time I get a chance, because it's a, 
it's a pick where of course they need a quarterback, but they haven't really given us a clue as to who they like or how all in they are on getting a quarterback. And if they pass on a quarterback and there's a quarterback still on the board when we get to number 10, like it's going to create some chaos because there isn't like an ob- really obvious next spot until maybe you get to the Patriots at 15. So like how many other teams could trade up? Like there was just the report from Ian Rappaport this morning that the Raiders are maybe interested. So like that, that could just throw everything off. If, you know, there's a quarterback on the board and the Raiders decide to trade up, which we haven't talked about once all off season. <laughs> so I mean, that's why the quarterbacks are just so crucial is if you can't, if you don't place the quarterbacks right in your mock draft, you're probably going to have an inaccurate year because just everything gets blown up based on where they go. Yeah, and there's there's such a slim uh, margin of error. Um, I looked up on Hubble Report the difference between coming in the top ten last year and finishing 84th uh, was 10 points, and you get two points for correctly matching the player to the team. Um, so just in in the two picks that we're kind of talking about, the um, number three pick. Um, and then possibly um, the number five pick will kind of uh, reverberate throughout throughout the rest of the draft. And that's, you know, that could have a direct effect on five players. Um, you know, the, th- the third pick is definitely going to have a domino effect because if you get that right, you have a good chance that you're going to get maybe all three of those quarterbacks still available after number two, right? But if you get number three wrong, you're guaranteed to get at least two of the next mm-hmm. three quarterbacks wrong. So it's it's a huge domino effect on that. Yeah, and that's super interesting. While we, you know, while you bring up the Huddle Report, I think we should note the two of you have been among the most accurate mock drafters uh, from according to that site. So uh, you guys have uh, at least a little bit of a sense of of knowing what you're doing. Competition there, competition. You guys, you guys know each other before this. Do you guys know each other? No. (laughs) It's hard to be too competitive about it, especially like in a given year. Because where you place in any given year, there's just so much luck involved. You know, like one team makes a really dumb decision that no one saw coming and you're going to get that pick wrong. Yeah, (laughs) the Raiders are a frequent culprit of that. (laughs) But if you look over time, like there is, you do frequently see the same people finishing in like maybe the top 20% year after year. So there's a little bit of skill in finishing near the top, but like the difference between one or two points, that's that's just dumb luck. (laughs) And it's funny you brought up the Raiders because I remember um, I happened to get the team and the player matched correctly, but I, they had two picks in the first round the year they took uh, Colin Farrell. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they took him number four overall, right? Yeah. But they had a second pick, and I actually had mocked him to the Raiders, but at the second pick, not the first pick. So nice. that's just to kind of t- to illustrate how sometimes luck gets involved there. I, I had it right. But I think it was like 18 picks before I actually had it. <laughs> uh, and that uh, explains the uh, the John Gruden, Mike Mayock Raiders uh, at, at the moment. Um, so it's super interesting when we're looking at this because, you know, Rich and I are diving into the depth charts and, and the team needs. And I think that starts to give you a bit of a picture of what the draft might look like for some of these teams. I know we just put up the Falcons and we've talked about the Falcons a bunch. I think we talked about them on last week's show. We kind of, you know, just hinted at the Kyle Pitts thing here, but man, when you look at like a team like that, it's just, I don't, I, by diving deeper into the roster, I am more confused about the roster. Um, Cause like I get, I get the Matt Ryan thing. Like I think Matt Ryan is still good. He could still be good for, you know, an extended period of time. Um, I think when you look at that offense, uh, but Rich, as you noted, they barely have anyone under contract after next year, um, but they still have so much cap space in invested in the players they do. And I've been doing the defensive side of the ball for all these team needs. And they don't have like anyone there. They have a whole bunch of, you know, 2020 and 2019 picks, a cornerback. You kind of hope they uh, work out. You have these guys in the secondary that uh, are in at safety. Uh, their safety room completely went away. They now have, you know, Eric Harris and Deron Harmon, who are probably going to be the starters along with Jalen uh, Hawkins. Uh, but those two are only signed uh, through 2021. So this is just, it's such like a weird roster and I'm um, really starting to, you know, just be more perplexed uh, by what they're doing. I mean, I was, you know, very much like they should draft Kyle Pitts because it's, you know, it's Kyle Pitts. Uh, and both of you guys do have Kyle Pitts uh, mock there. So when you're looking at uh, filling out these, 
uh, these mocks. How much are you going into team needs and really getting into the weeds of what they could be doing, what the roster looks like? Uh, and how much are you just kind of using uh, some of the, you know, know who probably should be going there uh so what's your balance between putting together those uh kinds of picks and the mocks for me i think that sort of shifts through out the offseason like early on i'm almost purely looking at depth charts and seeing what needs are and plugging guys in and just taking my best guess and then now as we get closer and closer like teams can't help themselves most teams at least can't help themselves but talk and tell us what they're going to do at least as far as like narrowing it down. So, you know, like the Falcons, you know, it, it is hard. Like we don't, we're not super confident that it's going to be Kyle Pitts, but there have been a lot of rumors that they're interested in Pitts or at least interested in adding to the offense to build around Matt Ryan. Um, so like we, we kind of feel like we've narrowed that down to they're either going to go for the future with the quarterback or they're going to take Kyle Pitts because he's, perfect play in that offense based on how the tight ends were used when uh, Arthur Smith was in Tennessee. So like it, it sort of becomes like more of a blend later on when like news and what the teams say start to match up with what we think their needs are. Yeah. I, I start with, you know, kind of big board scouting reports as a baseline. And then as we get closer and closer, you start to adjust based on the news and reports that are out there. Um, and like I said, it's kind of a weighted average. So depending on, you know, how strong those reports are coming out, you kind of almost have to scrap what you initially thought. And, you know, if our, our, our job is to kind of predict as best as we can what's going to happen. So like I said before, even if you personally think that they shouldn't do something, there's plenty of examples of, um, you know, a team doing, doing it anyway. So, you know, that's, it it's, it's depends on, on the player, the team, um, and what the news is out there. But, yeah, it certainly kind of shifts. You, ha- you have to be fluid and shift as you go. Yeah, and I know, Brandon, I know you, uh, for a long time, during your write-up of pick four, you were always like, yeah, no, a quarterback is going to go here. I just, <laughs> exactly. we don't know who. Um, and what team. <laughs> and to, yeah, and to That's what, what team. I, yeah. But, I, yeah, um, and I changed it saying, you know, now it's, I only think it's going to happen if a team trades up. And, I, and, you know, like I said, personally, I think Atlanta should trade down there. But we'll see what happens. Right, yeah, so that's the boat I've been on. Uh, they only have 20 players under roster for next year, and you talked about it. It's all tied into five players. And they could restructure a guy like Grady Jarrett. Uh, Matt Ryan get, only gets them $8 million back. You know, he has that huge cap, hit, but he actually does save them, you know, $8 million if they cut him uh, or trade him, you know, next off season. But it's a team like you talked about, you just did the offense, uh, defense, I did the offense. They just have so many holes everywhere. Uh, the offensive line, they have two good offensive linemen and Chris Lindstrom and Jake Matthews. The rest of the guys have, have really not worked out. Caleb McGarry was taken two years, two years ago and has really been poor. Uh, Hayden Hurst, they trade a second round pick for, they have the option. He's a fifth year option coming up. It's cheap enough to where they can just say, yeah, we can buy a year for it. They have no wide receiver under contract beyond the season, except for Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley will get his fifth year option surely picked up. But I mean, they just, and they have no running backs like at all, which, you know, whatever, but you know, they just have holes everywhere. Is the team that needs a lot of say that about Mike Davis. (laughs) (laughs) I think some of that roster construction is, has made me think that it's almost more evidence that they're not taking a quarterback and that they might want to take pits to make one last push with Matt Ryan, because he has meant a lot to the franchise. The owner obviously really likes him. And I think that especially with, we heard the reports where Arthur Smith was the one who was saying, let's win with Matt Ryan right now. I think if you go to an owner and say, you don't have to rebuild right now, it's really easy for the owner to buy into that. And then especially knowing that, all right, this is going to fall apart in the near future. We're going to be drafting in the top 10 again, maybe not next year, hopefully not next year, but two or three years down the road, like there's an obvious path to getting a great quarterback again in the relatively near future. So as a, as a domino effect, is it just to to roll that in? Cause I think it's a great kind of segue. Say Atlanta stays put, they don't find a partner. They do do that. They take pits. And as a, as a fantasy guy, I can't think of a really better landing spot for pits than in the top picks than that one. So I'd be still pretty excited, but you know, they take Kyle Pitts at four. Does that then we kind of were kicking this around in the chat earlier. Does that throw kind of a wrench into what Miami had originally planned? I, I really genuinely believe that Miami thought that they were going to get either pits or, or Jamar Chase. 
when they move back up to six after trading down to 12. And uh, they're going to be in a spot. Do they then force a pick or do they take one of these offensive linemen? I mean, first round wide receiver hit rates have just been so bad. And if you can't get the number one guy you thought you were going to get and you have to force the number two guy, I mean, does this then kind of put them in like another kind of quandary they were in last year where we're just chasing positions yearly like they are with the two tackles they took last year uh so i mean that, that's kind of the, that number four pick i've always said is kind of where the draft begins we all want to see who the 49ers take and we're waiting to to see who they pick but like whatever the falcons do is going to kind of set off the way the rest of the draft goes like you guys said yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean the dolphins probably thought a quarterback was going to go there either the at number four either the falcons or somebody else and then I think when the Panthers acquired Darnold, that was really the domino that fell. It made us think mm-hmm. like this might actually not happen because we thought the Panthers and Broncos were both interested in quarterbacks. And now that there's only one other team in the top 10 that we're pretty sure wants a quarterback, they don't really have to trade up to number four. So the Falcons might be stuck there where either they take a bad deal from a team like the Broncos to drop back or they're just, you know, just say, oh, well, I guess like we're stuck here and we're just going to take bits. So the Dolphins, I can't see them thinking that Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle is really a good investment at number six, just based on how they've been one of the teams that have been pretty smart in how they've used their resources. And even though I certainly agree that those are two really talented players, mm-hmm. small receivers, just they bust at a higher rate. And so to take them at six overall is a risk that I don't think we've seen the Dolphins make in the past few years. And maybe that's why there's been some speculation of them now interested in trading back down. Yeah, and I noted in my last mock, I, I don't think this is how Miami envisioned this all playing out when they initially made that trade. Um, I think they thought they were going to get their their pick of Pitts or Chase, whoever fell to them. So, um, yeah, I think they're certainly hoping for Atlanta to move back. Um, but yeah, I, I have them now taking Jalen Waddle there because, um, as we put in our news and rumors page, and you know, the reporters from the – uh, Miami Herald, the local beat guys are saying they're not going to be taking an offensive tackle, at least with the fir- with their first pick. So, um, yeah, I, I I think they're they're hoping and praying that somebody jumps into Atlanta's spot to take a quarterback. Yeah. So when we look at you guys' mock drafts, that is uh, actually the first place where you guys differ. One of you has uh, Waddle, the other has Devonta Smith. You guys have the same top five right now in your. Uh, latest mocks that have gone up uh, on the site this week. So obviously we have Trevor Lawrence at number one, Zach Wilson at number two. You both still have Mac Jones at number three, uh, Pitts at four, and then Jamar Chase uh, at five. So I'm going to open it up to both of you as we get into some of the more specifics of your mock drafts. Uh, Is there a place where you are the most confident, where you feel like you have a pretty good read on uh, what's going on and a pick in your mock where you feel uh, the most confident in? Uh, Ryan, let's start with you. Well, I, I would say stepping outside the top five where we have some amount of confidence there, I would say the Cowboys taking Patrick Sertan at number 10 right. is probably my next most confident pick. It's just like a really good blend of need and value. Sertan is you know, widely believed to be worthy of a top 10 pick. They have an obvious need at cornerback. Some teams definitely are going to prefer J.C. Horn from South Carolina, but the teams, or at least you know, the scouts that have talked about preferring him, they always cite his physical style of play. And the Cowboys haven't really been drawn to that type of cornerback. In fact, just last year in the second round, they drafted Trevon Diggs out of Alabama. So obviously we know they're comfortable with the style of play, the way that Alabama teaches their cornerbacks to play. So assuming they're interested in both of those cornerbacks, which we have every reason to believe they are, I'm pretty confident that they're going to lean Sertan. And then I'm also pretty confident he's going to be on the board. He could go earlier, but based on how we think the top 10 is going to play out, he's probably sitting there and it's a really easy choice. Yeah, I actually have the same exact answer. Um, outside of the, the top two picks, he's the only player that I have mocked at the same, at the same spot in all six iterations of my mocks. Um, as I kind of referenced in my mock draft process, in a perfect world, the consensus best player available matches the consensus team's biggest need, and in this case, it does. You know, going back to my formula, he's a consensus top 10 player on big boards. Um, the Cowboys' biggest need is arguably a cornerback. Co- he fits Dan Quinn's cover three scheme better than Horn does. Um, a cornerback selected by uh, a cornerback selected first by the Cowboys is 
overwhelmingly favored at minus 167, which is the biggest favor of any position to be selected first by any team of the draft props uh, offered. He's favored to be the first defensive player off the board at minus 125. So in that case, I don't overthink that, and I don't listen to the smoke screens out there with pits or horn or trades because it just checks off about as many boxes as you can possibly hope for at the number 10 uh, pick in the draft. Oh, just wait till Jerry Jones steps in and just ruins all your guys. It <laughs> <laughs> just says, I want Kyle Pitts, or I'm just going to take the best, uh, you know, some off Devonta Smith or somebody, you know, some crazy off Oh, the it could certainly happen. It could certainly happen. <laughs> I'll also add, just to follow up with that, especially since we're in agreement, that an additional level to it that makes me more confident is the Cowboys have actually become fairly predictable because Jerry Jones seems to have taken a step back. Now, obviously, last year it sounds like he may have been involved more in the selection of C.D. Lamb, but everybody praised that. It wasn't like he was like going out on a crazy limb. It was a player, a really talented player, fell further than expected. Like if you remember a few years ago, Leighton Vander Esch, they got I think it maybe 18 or 19 overall, and we all saw that coming a mile away. They didn't really disguise their interest in him that much. It was a position of need. So they've been a team that's been pretty easy to read in recent years, and so that that just adds to the confidence. Can we, I mean, is there a, uh, a chance that they, you know, we saw what happened to their old line last year. This got brutalized by injury and they lost Frederick. And um, I mean, is there any shot that they say, look, we, we, that is our bread and butter. You know, Zeke, we paid Zeke all this money. Let's just rebuild that O line as well. It's a good, Dak. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, yeah. And Dak, it's a good draft. Like maybe we just kind of wait, you know, until second round. I, I don't know. Just uh, that could be the one curveball. You know, I was kind of kidding with the whole Devonta Smith with, with Jerry Jones because, you know, as much as we like to joke about that, um, you know, his son seems to step in when needed and say, you know, when he wanted to draft Johnny Manziel and his, and his, you know, Stephen Jones said, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're taking uh, Zach Martin. Um, you know, I could see him doing this to say, look, let's let's go back to our bread and butter and let's just, you know, if Slater's there, um, you know, he's got multi-position you know, versatility you know, maybe we, we go ahead and, and, and take a shot at him instead of certain. I mean, it's, it does seem obvious that they're going to take a corner, but um, I wouldn't put it past them to, to look O-line as well. Yeah. I had them taking Slater in, in an earlier version of Mike draft based on that logic, thinking that, you know, he's, they maybe need help at tackle depending on the health of those guys, but that if they don't Slater can play guard too, just having that versatility. But, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about how we put together mock drafts knowing which beat writers are plugged in. If you look at some of the guys in Dallas who cover the team, have been covering the team for a long time, it's almost across the board. Everyone agrees they're going cornerback. And so that's just like, you know, that's another box that you can check when filling out a mock draft is that when they, you know, it fits value need the plugged in beat reporters agree, you know, it just, everything seems to line up for it. The vibe I get is, is, are one of these linemen going to fall? Like, is that like the, the dominoes kind of setting up for that? I mean, it looks like the Bengals and Dolphins, the two most obvious teams in the world I could potentially think of that need one of these two guys are both going to pass. Uh, so that really kind of puts us in a, like, we know Carolina, obviously that falls right in their laps. It's, and then if Denver has the kind of quandary of like, well, there's a right tackle on the board or a quarterback, like they have to choose one or the other. I mean, is it possible that one of these guys actually ends up falling a lot lower than expected? Yeah, I'm not sure what Brendan has in his current mock, but for the first time in my last one, I only put one offensive lineman in the top 10. And I had previ- in a few early versions, I had three with Christian Derrissaw joining them in the top 10. Um, yeah, it's surprising because not only do those players seem to be highly valued and match team yeah. needs, uh, but it's a just like it's a premium position where teams are sometimes even reach for it. And yet here they are presented with an opportunity to get a player that fits a need and is highly regarded. And yet they're going to say, no, thanks. It, it seems strange. So Sewell is only going to be 20 years old in the start of the season, which is wild to me. Yeah, it seems wild. So I don't know, Brendan, what do you have those guys going right now for you? Yeah, this is the first time that I've had one of them. Um, I have Slater outside of the top 10. I've had them both um, going in the top eight, I think the past three or four. Um, and it goes back to the domino effect. If we've all expected Sewell to, to go top five, top six at worst, now I have him falling down to eight, which then just consequently pushes Slater out. So, yeah, I, I you know, going back to Dallas, I think if, you know, if, if, I, I guess if somebody takes, you know, it's not a slam dunk that Sewell goes before Slater. So, you know, if 
Penny Sewell is kind of sitting out there at 10, I can see Jerry Jones, you know, getting uh, enamored with that, with that possibility there. So, you know, it's not off the board, but yeah, it, I, I start, I'm starting to see that the offensive linemen could be the ones that, that start to fall down a bit here. Gettleman just looking at his chops. <laughs> just wait, waiting for it, draft another first round offensive lineman. Hog we're, mollies. We're five years well, into it. We need I, to I fix them taking Slater. So, yeah. <laughs> Five years into, we need to fix the offensive line, and like I am currently the left guard for this team. I just... We always find a way to get your misery in here, Dan. I don't mean with his uh, somehow we do. I I just I don't care anymore. But also, it's just it's so amazing. His press conference yesterday, as we were talking now, where he's like, "I've tried to trade back." Like, come on, man. <laughs> I just like I don't want to get fleeced. The guy who has picked a running back number two overall, picked Daniel Jones sixth overall, picked uh, the worst offensive lineman of the four last year at six overall. Also, he doesn't want to get fleeced in a draft trade. I'm like, all right, all right. So let's get back on track here. Uh, we were just talking about what pick you guys have feel like you have the most confidence in. Uh, what is one where you are when you're putting out, uh, you're filling out your mocks? And you're just looking at the team and going, I really have no idea what these guys are going to do. Uh, I was going to say that I had, this is going to sound weird because I do have an idea of what they're going to do. Um, I know it's going to be one of three players. I, I, I know it, but I still, I flip flopped every single week on the Bengals at five. Um, and so this is one of those where I can't let my personal feelings get in the way of what I think is actually going to happen. Um, you know, I, I personally think that, they should take Sewell there, um, especially if Pitts is off the board. But it is starting to sound like, uh, you know, Chase is going to be the guy there. But, you know, we still have a week left, so that that could change. Um, I mean, this is a case where both players, uh, Chase and um, Sewell, are the presumptive number one players at their respective positions. Both are in the top five overall on consensus big boards and both fit, fit a need for Cincinnati. So in that case, I'd go with the offensive lineman, and Warren had a good stat that measured the first-round hit rate at each position by how often their fifth-year option is picked up. An offensive tackle was third at 68%, and a wide receiver was ninth out of 11 positions at 54%. And I saw another stat that 60% of offensive linemen drafted in the first round re-signed with their team, which was the highest at any position, whereas 27% of wide receivers do, which was the lowest. So... This is one of those ones where I, at some point, you know, I just have to go with, with what I'm hearing. I, I think that's the way the winds are blowing right now. So as of this week, like I said, I've, I've flip-flopped every week on this pick going back and forth between these three players. Um, but this week I have, I have Chase. So I'm confused on it still a little bit, but, um, you know, we'll see it, what, what happens with the final mock. As of now, it looks like Chase, but I'm holding the right to, to change it one more time. And ironically, Cincinnati is one of the teams that are the highest in their draft picks actually getting multiple contracts with the team, too. So it's going to be interesting to see what plays out there. Yeah, Cincinnati is uh, – like, I've, I've flip-flopped on how I feel about this, too, of what, like, I feel like they should do. Um, you know, I've gone from – you know, thinking that the offensive line definitely needs some help, especially with how often the Bengals went empty – uh, last year. That's something Joe Burrow did uh, a lot at LSU. That's really part of the LSU offense that um, the Bengals took uh, to what they did with Burrow last year in his rookie season. And you think when you're using five-man protection like that, that you know brings up how important the offensive line uh, can be. And I was looking at it, but he was, you know, he had the 12th highest pressure rate while in empty last year. So it's not like he was, you know, at the top. Uh, we talk about, you know, a team that's not even thinking about an offensive lineman right now. Uh, Matt Ryan had the highest pressure rate uh, in empty uh, last year uh, per SIS. So, um, and then when you think of, you know, they needing a wide receiver, they do run 11 personnel, one of the highest rates in the league. That's, a, you know, a Zach Taylor thing coming over from uh, Sean McVay. But I, I think that was kind of, uh, discounting how good T Higgins and Tyler Boyd are. You don't necessarily need a top five guy there, but also I'm starting to think you might be able to get the guy in the second round that could potentially start in the offensive line, whether you need, you know, a guard or a tackle. Uh, I don't think they necessarily need a tackle right now. It might be interior and that might help them more in the second round. You can get a guy like Jamar Chase that already has that, uh, you know, um, 
the relationship with Joe Burrow. Uh, and you it, so much of that is timing can already be there. So I, I've gone back and forth in my mind like 20 times too, and I'm still not totally sure uh, where I fall on that. So they are, they are one of the most interesting teams, I think, uh, especially uh, in this draft when you think about what they could potentially look like on offense. And, and really it, it completely pivots what their offense is going to be, I think, uh, depending on what that pick is. Another factor in that for the Bengals is do we, we don't really know, do they either maybe undervalue the offensive linemen or are they just really bad at evaluating offensive linemen, both in the draft and their own offensive linemen? Because think about how many years in a row did we think they were going to draft someone to replace Bobby Hart? And then it, it just, they just kept trotting him out there. I know Bengals fans complain about their offensive line, you know, just every single year. Uh, so maybe they just view it a little bit differently than we think they do. Yeah, they let a lot of guys leave too. They were good at drafting offensive line for a long time, you know, from Willie Anderson to Whitworth to Zietler. You know, they let those guys all walk. Uh, then they start bringing in the Billy Prices and Bobby Hart. <laughs> yeah, they're they're interesting. Even for me, being the fantasy guy who loves these, the, the, all let's see the draft capital invested. Wide receiver has just been unique investment. Anyways, you guys have talked about earlier, just like the second year contract rate. I tweeted earlier. There's been since 2005, there's been 49 first-round wide receivers. Only 11 have re-signed with the team that drafted them, pending Mike Williams on a fifth-year option. But wide receiver in general, because the way the college game has shifted into playing kind of their best players in the slot, and like the first-round wide receiver, it's impacted the, at the NFL level draft capital. Uh, these leaner, more versatile guys are turning in all this production at the college level, and they're getting drafted higher. And we're going to see it in this class again. Even Chase is only 201 pounds. It's not like he's this Mount Olympus type receiver, too. Now, he's a lot more physical than that when you watch him play. He, he has no problem like with guys putting his hands on him. But, you know, since 2015, we've had 23 first-round wide receivers, and just three have been higher than 215 pounds. Uh, 10 of the 23 have been fewer than 200 pounds. And that's what we're going to be right with this draft class. And this class is like that the whole way through. There's really no kind of shift around, but we've seen it recently with guys like AJ Brown, Chase Claypool, DK Metcalf, these strict like boundary guys, although AJ Brown was a slot in college. I think the league missed them last year with T Higgins, Cortland Sutton, these guys fall into the second round and they're getting drafted below guys like Marquise Brown and Jalen Ragor and like all these thinner guys. And uh, I just think like Dan kind of hit that. There's a lot more value and the Bengals did it last year by going wider receiver maybe in the top of the second round and going with Penny Sewell but it seems to be like that the focus is shifting away from that um, but yeah I think first round wide receivers gotten really interesting because the way the college game has started to incorporate uh, where their production goes to the offense. Yeah Ryan so uh, let's uh, hop to you uh, with your team that when you're uh, looking at your mock you're just kind of struggling to figure out what you're doing. Yeah well uh, the, the two teams I wrote down we kind of already touched on them the Dolphins just being you know do they really value Waddle or Smith that high and take them at six if those are the options? That's a really tough one. I don't have a lot of confidence, and I think a trade down seems pretty realistic. The other – I also mentioned the Broncos. Just I'm kind of 50-50 on if they're going to take a quarterback, and if they don't, I don't know where they're going to go. They don't have a lot of, like, really big, obvious holes that they have to fill, but, you know, they could take an offensive lineman. They could take a cornerback. So they're, they're if they don't go – with a quarterback, kind of a wild card. But another one that I'll mention that we haven't brought up yet is the Cardinals picking at 16. I'm pretty confident that they would take either Patrick Sertan or J.C. Horn if they fell there. I feel similarly about if Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddell fell there. I think they'd be really happy. But in most versions of my mock drafts, and I, you know, I think most mock drafts that are out there have those guys all off the board. So if they don't have an option to take one of those top guys at receiver or cornerback, I don't know what they'll do. And I think their choice is going to have a really big impact on the second half of the first round because they could take the next receiver. Maybe they take Elijah Moore from Ole Miss if they want like a speed guy or Kadarius Tony for similar reasons. And if they reach for someone like that, what, how does the, you know, how do the dominoes fall after that? Does somebody else reach for a receiver? Cause now they're worried that someone's not going to be there in the second round because this run on receivers might happen. It, I mean, we see that happen in drafts sometimes. And, you know, the, the same thing could happen at cornerback. If they're at 16 and the top guys are off the board and they take Greg Newsom as the third cornerback off the board, how do the teams beyond them react? Does somebody else then panic and say, well, we got to get our guy now because, you know, pick 50 whatever, or whatever, maybe someone's not there because the run has already happened. So 
you know, for the sake of our mock drafts, hopefully they get one of those guys that, that they have at the top of their board. Cause I think that'll make the draft be a little bit more predictable, but it could create a kind of a chaos in the second half if they don't, and they have to, you know, reach at one of those positions. Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, that's, you know, one thing we don't really, you know, talk about a lot is how teams react to the runs. Uh, and I think that was a couple years ago when they kind of talking about Gettleman and his trades, when he traded up for DeAndre Baker, and obviously that turned out to be disastrous, but he was trying to get in front of the run. He got into that late first round to get Baker. And then at the start of the second round, that's when that run started with, uh, um, you know, Byron Murphy, uh, Rocky Sin, uh, Green. Williams, uh, not Greedy Williams, Greedy Williams went uh, way too far after uh, again. Um, but uh, that run of a couple of guys and the Giants probably wouldn't have been there to be able to take one of those cornerbacks at the top of the second, which they were probably thinking of doing. So uh, it, it's very interesting that you know, we don't really know how teams are going to react when those runs start. And yeah, the, the Cardinals, like I've looked at them a whole bunch and they're a place where I would love Jalen Waddle to fall there and knowing that there's 0% chance of that happening. Um, also, you know, I've kind of seen there's rumors of them potentially uh, thinking about trading up. Um, you know, that's something that I would say, no, please don't do, but then would see Jalen Waddle on that roster and then be like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm all right with at least watching that uh, from a team building standpoint, please don't do that. Uh, so yeah, they are fascinating. I think I've heard them, um, Connected to Zayvon Collins, which kind of makes sense, I guess, in theory. But if you're using, you know, two early firsts on Isaiah Simmons and Zayvon Collins back to back, that's probably not how you want to be building your roster either. So it's just that's a really just super interesting team that we I think collectively we like a lot of the pieces on that team. Don't always know exactly what they're doing, uh, even uh, on the good days. Um, especially like their free agent hall this year with the AJ Green and um, everything else they've done. So I don't know. I, and that's a team I, I want to be more confident in thinking they'll do something that'll be fun uh, for and good for the next uh, upcoming season. So uh, while we uh, push on to this, let's just kind of get into some players. Are there some guys that you guys are currently, um, you know, looking at uh, in that might not be mocked uh, as often in the first round that you think might be able to uh, sneak up there. Guys, you're kind of desperately trying to fit into the first rounds of your mocks, uh, but just don't really fit. Well, for me, one, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm desperately trying to fit him in, but I think because like we talked about runs on position happen, Liam Eikenberg, the offensive lineman from Notre Dame, I think is a player that I could very easily see sneaking into the back after the first round because there are quite a few teams back there who need to address the offensive line. So if, you know, we've talked about, you know, maybe the offensive line at the beginning of the draft slide a little bit further. And that, if that happens, that could push him out. But if they come off early, then you've got, you know, Washington could theoretically take one. The Raiders need a right tackle desperately. The Colts need a left tackle desperately. If there's like a run right around that range and tackles, then what does a team like Kansas city do at the back end of the first round? They're, probably not in a position to trade up for someone because they would probably have to jump 10 picks or so. And that seems kind of risky. So if they're just sitting there and feel like we have to address this need, I think someone like Liam Eichenberg is someone that they can draft safely knowing that, you know, he started for multiple years, really technically sound, doesn't have like the traits that jump off the chart, but a team that needs a starter can easily talk themselves into drafting him. So one of those teams at the back end of the first round, might not be like thrilled to get him, but feel like he's just like a safe pick as they try to, you know, fill some holes as a contender. Um, I will use the term desperate. I, I'm desperately trying to get Alex Leatherwood um, in there. I just put him to uh, Pittsburgh at as high as 24. Um, he fits into three angles that um, we've been stressing and talking about. He has the experience. He was a three-year starter and played both guard and tackle. Um, he was not an opt-out last year and, and actually played the full season. So for those reasons, plus the hit rate of offensive linemen in the first round, I think he's just a safe pick. Um, and I think teams are going to try to lean towards that since we have such a unique draft process this year. So um, I actually, I think uh, Leatherwood alleviates some of his concerns about his lack of uh, athleticism to play offensive tackle. Um, at his pro day, he had a 9.68 uh, RIS score, which was actually higher than Penny Sewell's. 
But, I mean, even if he does struggle at tackle at the next level, you can easily move him inside to guard. And, you know, he should be an above-average starter for the next decade, which I've said many, many times, the Steelers should prioritize um, offensive line over running back. And, I, you know, I, I'll die on that hill, and, and maybe I will on draft night. So that's why I, I say I'm desperate to get that in there. Hey, can I ask you guys a question? Since I, uh, you guys are talking about uh, players you're trying to fit. What, you know, I was doing some work. I actually posted this morning about the Browns kind of some options there. And, um, you know, wide receiver has been kind of mentioned if you don't go defense. And, you know, I was kind of surprised that uh, Kadarius Tony, his numbers just jump off the chart. Um, he's the only receiver who ran drills. Now, you know, uh, Waddle and Devonta Smith didn't, but the only receiver who ran drills um, who's top five in, 40 time vertical jump and, and broad jump. And we know he produced last year. I mean, he had 10 touchdowns, almost a thousand yards. So productions there, the athleticism's there. Why is he not being uh, talked about as kind of a, a top 20 pick? Like what I've seen, you know, some, some people talking about Bateman over him that he could be a set, you know, early second round pick. Is there something I'm missing there? I know he had, you know, some potential off the field stuff a few years ago, but it seems like that was kind of a, you know, um, stuff that was, you know, about three years ago and it's, uh, you know, something with guns, but he had, you know, he didn't get charged or anything. Is there anything I'm missing with, with Tony here? I think a big factor in that is just why didn't he get on the field much early in his career? I mean, he was behind Freddie Swain and Van Jefferson last year to, I mean, NFL players, but, you know, relatively unimpressive, not the type of guy that keeps a future first round pick on the bench. And Dan Mullen has done a nice job developing players and he hasn't typically made dumb decisions on offense throughout the course of his career. So it's, it's very possible that that's the reason that teams are just kind of like, either they're wondering why doesn't Dan, why didn't Dan Mullen trust this guy early in his career? Or maybe they've even talked specifically to Dan Mullen. It's very, you know, some college coaches, I don't know for sure what Mullen's reputation is, but some college coaches, I don't like Nick Saban's one of them have a reputation for being pretty honest with the NFL about their opinion of players. And so, you know, sometimes when someone unexpectedly slides, it could be that, you know, that they're just, they weren't trusted and teams didn't hear good things about them. We can, we can only guess, but like that, that does jump out as like a big red flag when someone like Tony playing for a good coach with a good track record developing players can't get on the field. No, that's good. Yeah, I, mean, I, what I guys... still have him going in the first round, so I don't think he falls too much, but yeah, as you guys kind of illuminated, there are some question marks around him. He's just the type of guy, too, the NFL has shown that they overvalued. I think he's going to go in the first round. Uh, but you look at his, his archetype, I mean, 67% of his catches came within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. Rondell Moore is the only guy with more in this class. He's kind of like a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-nuns guy. Uh, really good missed tackles, really good in the kick-return game. But, like, as an actual wide receiver, there's not a lot there uh, for him. You know, um, But, you know, you go back to the last game he played, that Alabama game, and he crushed them. You know, I always love when guys, like, perform in those big spots. And Pitts and Tony absolutely destroyed Alabama in that game. Uh, so it's always tough to – whenever I'm looking at Trask and trying to talk myself into Trask, uh, potentially going, like, somewhere where he could start in year one, like the Bears, like, I'm always just like, well, how much of it was those two guys? But, yeah, Tony's a guy, like, when you just look at his overall profile, like, the NFL has consistently got that archetype wrong when they elevate those guys highly. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I know that Bateman is – it feels like Bateman is, like, this year's kind of It always Twitter. depends what you want because they, they play two different positions. Yeah, it feels like he's being pushed up, I think, in the public eye. I don't think he's as highly sought after. Um, it just doesn't feel like his type is, is the guy that would be pushing, the, you know, ahead of a Tony or just, you know, in the 20s. I think he's actually going to drop. He doesn't have elite athleticism. It's decent. Uh, if you look at his uh, relative athletics where it's, you know, like eight. So it's, you know, solid, but nothing spectacular. You know, he doesn't have great size. He's six feet, 190. Um, he did, you know, he did this, whatever you want to think about, um, his, you know, opting out or whatever, or playing and then, and then leaving Minnesota. I mean, that is some, some of these old school GMs think about that stuff. Like, uh, it sounds like his tape wasn't nearly as good this year. I, I'm just a little, I think that this is one of those where, you know, Twitter kind of loves this guy and thinks he can go pretty high. I mean, I saw someone talking about how, you know, oh, could he go ahead of Devonta Smith? Like to me, that's just insanity. Um, but I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on Bateman as well. Sorry to pepper you guys with wide receiver questions, but I'm, I'm making this all about me today. So, 
Yeah, I've frequently had Bateman in my first round mock drafts. And part of that, I mean, I agree with everything you say about him. There's definitely like a case to be made that he should fall to the second round. But when you look at the makeup of the class, sometimes that shapes where players could go. So Bateman is like a pretty traditional outside wide receiver. And if you look at the majority of the guys on day two, especially early day two, it's mostly going to be a lot of really small slot receivers. So if you look at the end of the first round, you have teams like the Browns, Ravens, Saints, Packers, all lined up in a row. All of them could justify taking a receiver. All of them would probably prefer someone who can play on the outside. So like that's, you got four teams at the back end of the first round who could justify that guy. And if they wait till day two, maybe they don't get like that type of receiver and they might be slightly less interested in those smaller guys on day two, like Rondell Moore or someone like that. And just like, they're, they're so different the team could reach a little bit for Bateman. Yeah, this class yeah, is with, no with, shortage of Eric Metcalf types. <laughs> and with Terrace Marshall having some medical red flags pop up, I think, you know, Bateman may have just passed him on some team's boards just with that. Yeah, I think when you look at the Bateman, it's so much of what you uh, – and a bunch of guys are like this in the class this year. What do you take from 2019 versus what it is from 2020? He's a completely different player uh, playing a very different role. And in 2020, he did have COVID. I think he struggled with weight issues, uh, which I think he uh, it said on a, a PFF podcast that I think he like lost like 20 pounds. I think he was down to like 190 uh, playing uh, during 2020 with the going through some COVID issues. So I think that – impacted his game a little bit he was a much better and more impressive player uh statistically and and route running and all of those things in in 2019 so if you are thinking that is more of what Rashad Bateman is then I I could see how you're a lot higher on him like he's he's a guy that I've been back and forth too like I the 2019 version of him is absolutely someone I would like a lot. The 2020 version uh, uh, was not. So I think general managers are going to have to really go through that. But I think when we go back to this, uh, you know, the, the Tony thing, uh, when you're looking at receivers who might be somewhat playing the same role, we said, you know, he doesn't really play the same position as Bateman. Um, no, Elijah Moore, it does. And I think when we've seen the past, you know, couple of weeks or even the past month or so, I think Elijah Moore has started to pick up that steam that Kadarius Tony had, uh, starting this process. I think they've kind of flip-flopped uh, a little bit, and I think Elijah Moore is now the the smaller slot guy that um, a lot of you know people, evaluators on Twitter, and I think in the NFL um, have kind of put in that you know top tier after the top couple of guys, and he's the guy that's probably going to go you know maybe in the mid middle of the first uh, late. Um, first round where Tony was originally that guy. I think you, if you look at the the grinding the mocks um, site where they have you know a database of all these mock drafts aggregated, uh, and you look at their two um, their two lines of where they are, uh, it's a huge uh, line up for more. Tony's dropping a little bit, and they're they I think they they've just crossed where more is going to the top. So I think, and from what I've looked at, I think kind of more is Tony, but better. I think he just kind of does everything that Tony does, but better. I think he's been more consistent with it um, and, you know, played a a bigger role in that offense. Um, So let's, uh, let's go to um, the other side of that. And I think we kind of can, Tony might fit in there, a guy that's being mocked in the first round, but potentially you might kind of see slide out and maybe is that late round one guy, but might uh, drop a, a little more than a lot of mocks are putting them in. Yeah, that that guy for me is Caleb Farley. I think he would be someone who would probably be the most surprising. Obviously, there's, you know, anyone at the end of the first round could, but Farley would be the one I think that would most surprise people that I think is realistic. He goes on day two, and it really just comes down to injuries and just like a lack of team's exposure to him. In 2017, he had a torn ACL. Then his 2019 season ended with back surgery. He opted out in 2020, and then he needed another back surgery just this past March. So that's just like a lot of stuff taking him off the field in a really short amount of time, plus the fact that he opted out. So teams haven't seen him on the field in a year and a half. That's just like a really tough, tough situation to justify taking him. Now, I I have kept him in the, I think, all of my first-round mock drafts because he is going to be much more physically talented than most of the guys who come off the board in like the 25 to 32 range. So like, team like the Browns or the Bills, someone like that, you know, really any of those teams that thinks they're going to be drafting at the back end of the first round over the next five years or so might say, 
look, we're just not going to get another chance to draft someone with this much talent. Let's gamble on them. It could happen, but you know, we, we should also be prepared for the possibility that he slides into day two and even slides away on day two, because you know, once everybody passes over him once, that probably means that a portion of those teams have dropped way down their board. Nobody used to have back problems. <laughs> yeah. But nobody. <laughs> no, there's nobody that had back problems that just go and say, we, I used to have back problems. Yeah. Here's a, you know, I, uh, I talked about this this morning. I tweeted about it this morning. Like, you know, people were saying Farley the Browns. If, you know, the Browns, because they're pretty conservative, but if a bunch of teams or if all the teams are cl- you know, are clearing him medically, he's not going to even sniff 26, right? Like he's going to go top 15 to 18 maybe. Um, but if he gets to the point where he lasts till, to the end of round one, that means that a bunch of teams have, have essentially crossed him off um, and are just off the board. So he may, you know, fall to the middle of the second round or something. You know, I think it's kind of an all or nothing. I think he's either cleared by a lot of teams and he goes pretty high, like as high as maybe, maybe not originally expected, but you know, a a notch or two below, or he drops, like there's no in between. And it's interesting. He was invited and he's accepting. um, He's one of 12 players to be accepted to to be in Cleveland for the draft. And that says a lot, right? I mean, I don't know how many guys pass. I know Lawrence did, but um, you know, does the NFL know something we don't? I mean, I guess if you're being invited, you probably have a better chance than not of being a top 20 pick. Yeah, I mean, I believe – I haven't seen this report this year, but I believe traditionally it's Gil Brandt at the NFL who uh, figures out who should be invited based on, you know, his own evaluating and talking to teams and whatnot. And he does he has done a pretty good job of getting guys to the draft that go early. Even some of the – you know, some more surprising ones that he's chosen have gone. But there's also – I forget the names all the time I had, but there have also been guys who have shown up and then left – because it was taking too long. So it's not it, like, it certainly doesn't mean that, you know, the NFL knows he's going because there have been cases where they were wrong and guys have just gone home. Right. I just find it interesting that it's him because of the injury issue. It's not just, you know, a guy who dropped or dropped, but um, yeah, no, I, I'm curious to see what, what happens to him because like I said, if I think if he falls, it's going to be a, a big fall. And if he, if he's actually cleared, I think someone's going to take him pretty high. So um, you know, that's a team that, you know, the Cardinals are like a perfect team. I think I, there's no way he'll drop past 16 if he's cleared by them, in my opinion, because they it's a huge need. I um, mean, he's obviously a really good player. So um, that to me is kind of the, you know, that 16 to, you know, late teens is where I see him kind of fall, you know, uh, going if he's if he's cleared. So interesting case. We always get one or two of these you know, either the ones that we know about in terms of injuries and see where, what happens to them. And then there's always like the, the one or two guys that just falls real far. It may not just be a first rounder, maybe a guy who's supposed to go to the top two rounds and goes to like the six. And you don't know why until after the draft or, you know, when he's selected and you get, you know, Chris Mortensen comes out and says that, you know, fail, you know, failed to, phys- you know, had some sort of physical issue or need surgery. So there's always guys like that, 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 you know, that stuff pops up. Yeah, I agree with you guys on that one. Um, but if I'm going to die on the hill with uh, me taking um, an offensive lineman uh, with the Steelers at 24, I might as well just go ahead and bury myself on that same hill with this one and just say Najee Harris. Um, I won't continue to beat a, a dead horse. But again, Warren has illustrated both in an article and uh, on Twitter as to why teams should not be taking a running back in the first round. And specifically the Steelers, as Connor was not the problem you know, it, it was the offensive line. They were 31st in the league in yards before contact last year, and that was with the three starters that they've lost in the offseason. You know, but ultimately, I like, I like being right more than I like being wrong. So the reports are still this strong out of Pittsburgh the night before the draft um, that they're going to take Harris. You know, I might have to change my final mock. Um, but until then, I'm going to continue to fight the good fight. Imagine anyone watching the Steelers' offense last year and thinking that it was like a running back's fault, like their offense occup- occupied in that fashion. Also, if you watched the Steelers' offense last year, I'm sorry. Yeah, the final That's... eight weeks of the Steelers' season was just an, an abject disaster offensively. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, just the – like you said, I can't imagine watching that offense if you, like, you know what they needed. <laughs> Running back. I mean, Casterly has Justin Fields going to the Steelers. That's – I mean, talk about one kind of off-the-wall mock. I mean, that would be interesting. I mean, if he does fall, that, that would be – 
to me an easy choice for them, but yeah, Charlie Castle is probably not something we need to spend really any time <laughs> discussing on this podcast. Maybe we'll end on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, I think that is really all uh, we had uh, for you guys uh, on the topics of uh, the box and, and this podcast. So I uh, appreciate you guys uh, joining us. For those of you listening, uh, all of us again and Warren are going to be, uh, the plan is to do another Twitter Spaces uh, on Tuesday night where we kind of talk about some of the stuff. We talked about some draft props, um, a whole bunch of other stuff in the draft. So I think we had a really good one uh, last Tuesday. Um, it was uh, a lot of fun. We had uh, Carl Banks join us uh, toward the end. So uh, if you guys are around Tuesday night, I believe uh, 8 p.m again uh, all the five of us and warren are going to be on twitter spaces again just kind of uh, talking some drafts so um well we're going to end here you can read all of our work on uh sharp football analysis uh like we mentioned uh up at the top ryan brendan been doing a uh, great mock drafts they will they each have six up right now their most recent uh were from this past week they'll each have one more uh before uh the first round of the draft and they'll be uh, doing some other stuff for us you know i Rich and I still plowing through uh, team needs. We'll be finishing them up uh, early next week so you can see all of that. Um, so uh, we just like to uh, thank you guys for listening and uh, we will talk to you again soon.